All right. Well, I would like to uh, please forgive um, the lighting here. Um, those of you that have known me for a long time, you know that I've been dealing with headaches forever. Um, and I've always testified that I, by God's grace, I never get them on Sunday mornings. I, I've only, um, I could have them every single day of the week and then Sunday afternoon, but I never get them on Sunday mornings. But um, God decided to throw me a curveball today. So this is a little bit of an experiment. Um, my voice is also a lot deeper, so I realize with the mood lighting and the Barry White voice that um, <laughs> what's going on? But uh, I, it's not intentional. Um, uh, it is, well, it is intentional. The worship team was so kind as to set this up. So, yeah, sorry if you have a hard time seeing, but it's really helpful to not have those things blasting. So, anyway... Last week, we asked an important question, um, have you had a meaningful encounter with Jesus? And, and this week, I, I asked myself an equally important question that came from this text, have you ever found yourself wishing for a redo, um, a, a do-over, a new start, uh, whatever you want to call it, have, have you ever just messed up and wished that you could have a blank slate and also maybe get a little nudge to push you in the right direction so that you don't just fall down the same pit again. Uh, of course you have. Every person has. Uh, I wanted to make sure that was true. I, I asked several people this week just to have a little test sample. So either I run with a very licentious crowd or um, all of you guys are sinners. And um, you've been in this situation before where you need this reality of, I hope that God can give me a fresh start here, a, a real fresh start, one that both wipes the slate clean and one that kind of cleans up the disaster of yesteryear and propels you towards success and not falling back into the same pit. Well, this passage shares that very real hope this morning. So I want to ask you, if you ever really felt, like really just take it to mind, ask yourself this, marinate yourself in it before we go to our text, if I need a do-over, a, a fresh start, a, a new beginning, um, have you ever felt like the guy in, in, in this video? It's, it's glorious. It shows it a couple times through. Oh. Man, I love that. If you think that's good, watch it in slow motion. Bang! <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's only 40 seconds long, so I'll just let write it out. <laughs> uh, can anyone relate? to that, that guy. I saw that video this week and I was like, man, what a metaphor for the way that life comes at you. Life is coming at you in one way and it's kind of fast and then at the end it takes a curve, right? A pretty wicked curveball comes at you and you end up swinging and totally whiffing and you, you swing and miss and in the process you end up landing flat on your face and all you could do is sort of sit there in the mess that you just created and throw your hands up like the guy 
just did it. If you've ever been in that place, then you kind of wish like you could do back when we were kids and just yell, do over. And you remember how glorious that was? That just by uttering those simple two words, do over, it suspended all rules of time and space. And for some reason, you got another chance that you didn't deserve just because all you did was blow it and say, do over. Well, um, how cool is it? To get that do-over and it'd be like that swing and miss never even happened. You were never flat on your back. You have a complete clean slate. And the good news that we're going to see from our passages, no matter how many times you're that guy that has swung and missed and falls down only to fool yourself and say, ah, boy, Lord, here I am again. It's me, the screw up. Guess what? He's always delighted that you're there every single time, and he's always there to pick you back up, dust you back off, and give you yet a do-over. You have not exhausted his fountain of do-overs. You never will. That is the good news that we're going to see from this text. Another thing that I just thought was interesting before we get into the text, the way of preliminary, um, is every single culture has the concept of do-overs. You know, when, when you go into the health food store, every brand of fast that you can find. And I'm not picking on any. Um, I, I had some of you keto fools come up to me last week and were like, why are you picking on keto? And I, I'm not picking on whatever your name brand cleanse is. Okay, so not picking on you. But, but the way that they're marketed hits us right here in this God-given desire that we have in our hearts that this is a product that is going to give my system a do-over. I'm going to give my body a fresh Star. Even children who have never been taught the idea of do-over. If you watch them play, as soon as they are unenamored with the way that things are going, they call do-over. And you say, well, where did you even hear that? That's not in cartoons today. That's not really something that you see. Where did they get that idea from? That if I mess up, I should get a fresh start and be able to just pretend like the mess up never happened. Well, I'm going to show you from our text that the whole world might believe in the do-over but a relationship with Jesus is the only way to get a clean slate. So last week we looked at how a real encounter with Jesus is a real encounter. This passage is going to take that encounter to the next level and talk about a real relationship with Jesus. So we're going from encounter language to relationship language. Look at verse 5. It says, this is the message that you've heard from him. And we proclaim from you that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. So we begin to see just how real this relationship is that he's talking about. If you're going to introduce somebody to someone that they've not met, what's the first question that you would ask, right? Right after, is he a Calvinist? You would say, what is he like? Um, well, that's what John does here. He, he, in last week's passage, he started off by saying, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that you have not met yet. And now he's saying, I want to describe what this person is like. And just like you would with anybody that you're inviting into a relationship. So what is he like? That's what verse 5 is getting to. It's saying that he's perfect. The fact that God is light, this speaks to the very nature of who God is. It speaks to his perfect righteousness and his holiness. It speaks to the fact that there's no secrecy at all in God. There's no hiding going on in the shadows. You're not going to find out something down the road if you enter into a relationship with God that is going to disappoint you. 
about him. There's no shady deals that are going on inside the Trinity ever. God is complete and and total light. In him, uh, there's no darkness. But in declaring his perfection, it does something interesting. It, by definition, sort of defines all of his other attributes and puts them on the table. Uh, If anyone here has ever seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, um, if you haven't, you're missing out. That is like the best movie if you have kids or grandkids, um, and I never get tired of it. But when he he realizes the concept that all he has to do is type in anything, and he can turn it into food. And if you remember Flint's talking to the reporter, and she's like, can you make a cheeseburger? Yes, I can make a cheeseburger. That's food. Can you make spaghetti? Yes, that's food. Um, And she keeps on, lobster, yes, that's food. Um, what part of its food do you not understand? If it's food, I can make it. Well, that's kind of a silly example to be able to say anything includes anything. And just like he's saying here, in complete light and without darkness means that that's the way all of his attributes are to be viewed. So perfection is just that. It's perfection. And this is God's word defining him. We are called into a relationship with somebody who is perfect in every single one of his attributes. Jesus is perfect in his love. Jesus is perfect in his holiness. Jesus is perfect in his kindness. Jesus is perfect in his discipline. Jesus is perfect in what he allows into your life, and he's perfect in what he does not allow into your lives. Let me repeat that one. Because we're going to get some mileage at it. Jesus is perfect in what he allows into our lives. And he's perfect in what he does not allow into our lives. So perfect just means perfect. That's what it means when you say in him there's no darkness at all. That's why John points out his perfection. It's kind of shorthand to be able to say this is who you're being called into relationship with. Do you get this? Do you see how awesome this is? Who you're being called into relationship with? This is not just something that we remind people of their first time meeting Jesus either. Thank you. Amen. Follow me on this. I'm finding that it is the most important thing to remind people of, bar none, whether believer for a long time or a long-term believer. Hear me out on this. I, I can't tell you how many conversations that I get into on such a regular basis that goes something like this. If God is so perfect, then why did he do this? Or why did he allow this? And they might not come out and say it, but the, they're accusing God of having spots of darkness when they say that. And look, I'm not saying that to condemn anybody either. The people that we treat like they're Bible heroes are not, in fact, heroes. It's written all over the scriptures that people had this struggle. If you've ever read the book of Habakkuk, it's only a couple of pages long, but it is just so jam-packed of good stuff. And basically, Habakkuk's whole argument is, God, if you're so perfect, then why are you judging your people with the Babylonians who are even worse than we are? What's he really saying as he's making that argument? He's saying, God, could it possibly be that there's a spot of darkness in you? You've clearly missed something in the way that you're handling this situation. Or how many Psalms have you read where David is just to this point of being fed up and and not all of them end up having 
a happy resolution at the end of it. Sometimes he's just bearing his soul before God, and he's saying, God, I'm doing everything that I can here, and you're just letting me get whacked in the eyes. And you know what? It seems like you don't really care all that much either. Boy, I read those psalms, and you're like, whew, I, I identify, but I don't, kind of don't want to admit that I identify with that. But what's he saying? He's saying, God... You missed the boat on this one. And I could give you a lot more clear examples. This one's a little bit speculative, but I thought it was interesting. One that's a little bit less clear but really confuses me, um, but kind of fascinates me at the same time, is when John the Baptist sends messengers to ask, are you really the Messiah, or should we keep looking around? And I can't be certain here, but I think what he's saying is, I kind of thought that when the Messiah showed up, it was going to be a little bit cooler than this. Um, this kind of stinks. I've sort of gone all in, and then I take a step to go and tell the puppet king, you're not the puppet king. Jesus is the puppet king. I didn't think that it was going to end up like this. But the way that Jesus answered him seems like that's sort of what was going on, isn't it? He's like, well, look. Let me tell you, there's a lot more cool stuff going on than you might think. The deaf are receiving their hearing, and the blind are being able to see. He's saying, yeah, the Messiah is here, and it is pretty cool. It's subtle, but it's the same heart. And I bring up all of those examples to kind of just ask, has your heart ever been in that same place? Like, um, I thought it would be a little bit cooler than this when the Messiah came into my life. Um, you ever thought that? How about this one? You, you ever thought that, but you've just been afraid to admit it? Um, well, look, people need to be introduced to the perfect Jesus. You also need to be regularly reintroduced to him and reminded that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. I was thinking really hard this week. How do you communicate this truth? And it needs to be done really tenderly because, look, if somebody's lost sight of what we're talking about right now, you can't logic them back into seeing it rightly. You have to shepherd their heart to bring them back to that place. So if you're in a painful situation and you're trying to make sense of the painful situation while struggling with where you stand on the goodness of God, then you're trying to discern a difficult situation while wearing the wrong set of lenses. The goodness of God and the perfection of Jesus are supposed to be the fixed point that's supposed to be the one constant in a world full of variables, in a world, I know you know this, I'm looking at some of you where I know this is the situation. You know that life can go from okay to like, oh my God, within a, that quick. It's not like you get, you get a vote. It's not like he asks your opinion or says, hey, do you think you're ready? I'm going to pull the rug out from underneath you. It's, you're never ready for it when it happens. If you're here, I mean, we could be spiritually prepared so that our whole worldview doesn't fall apart, but there's never a season where you just say, look, I've got some spare in the reserve, so God, if you really want to whack me between the eyes, right now would be a good thing. You're never going to say that. Let's be honest. And the people that do pray stuff like that, you know the guy at the prayer meeting, like, send trials into my life, Lord. You're just, seriously, guy? Like, you really got to pray that? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I think I lost my point because that guy agitates me when he does that. But it, it, it's, it's supposed to be 
when you look at the goodness of God, it's supposed to be this one point, and everything else might be circling around, but this isn't circling around. God's goodness isn't circling around. God's goodness isn't changing. It's, it's fixed. It's a rock that you can always come back to to be able to recalibrate all of this mess out here as it's moving at a pace that sometimes you don't really get to say so, the pace that it goes. And you know what? Even though that's not the main point of the message, I have a feeling that for somebody that's the main point today, that you just need to be reminded that God is perfect and in him there is no shadow of shifting. He is light. There is no darkness in him. We need to remind ourselves who it is that we entered into a relationship with. And then as John continues to describe what a relationship with Jesus looks like, he kind of takes an interesting take on it. He describes what Jesus is looking for in the relationship. Go figure. Jesus gets to say so in the relationship too. He says in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. So, so we just saw in the last verse that God is light, and he's calling those who are going to have a relationship with him to walk in light. To keep with relational language, you're entering into a relationship with somebody, then you should share something in common with the one that you're entering into a relationship with. So if you're entering into a relationship with somebody who is defined by the fact that they are light, then you can't ascribe much value to that relationship if you're also ascribing value to darkness. That's what verse 6 means. If you were to look at a commentary, that would be like the commentary definition of verse 6. The Greek term here for fellowship in verse 6 is, is really a, an important word in the New Testament. When the New Testament authors use the term fellowship, they're using the Greek term koinonia. And the best way to really take koinonia and bring it to the English is not fellowship, because fellowship can be one of those words that kind of gets crusted over with Christianese, and you can lose sight of what that means. So if you really wanted to do some good Greek exegesis on the word fellowship, um, the best way to understand it in our vernacular would be to say common life with somebody. Um, that, that's Anytime you think fellowship, you could replace that with the terms common life with someone. So if you're having fellowship with people in your community group, what you were saying is this is a group of people that we have common life with, shared around the person of Jesus. Uh, and if you have people over your house for a time of fellowship, you're saying you invited them over for common life. So this verse is saying that if you say that you have common life with Jesus, you're going to be living common life with Jesus. And when you define the term fellowship, clearly, it really makes John's point here really clear. If you claim to have common life with Jesus, then you should not be having common life with darkness. And the verse goes on to make a pretty strong statement. It's saying, if you claim one thing, but you live something else entirely, um, he just comes right out and says, you're a liar. Um, if you don't like that term, or if that hits too close to home, I just want to encourage you, don't get mad at me. I, I didn't say it, the Bible did. Um, so, and if you're mad about it, then, um, I don't know, work on that. Um, but what the verse is getting at is, is living half-hearted for Christ while pursuing the world at the same time is you're, you're a double agent, man. You're living a double life. Life. It would be like if I claimed to love my wife, 
but you knew that I was running around with another woman behind her back. And I was having common life with my wife, but I'm having common life with another woman. In the very least, you would have the right to doubt my sincerity when I talk about my wife, right? Um, But interestingly, when you apply that same logic to somebody's faith, they call you a legalist and they say that you're condemning. Um, I don't know. So if you're not living a common life with Jesus, then just don't say you're living a common life with Jesus. This verse, common life, means that we're doing our best to not be a double agent. I'm not going to claim to have common life with Jesus while double-lifing with darkness. And if I am, then I have to be okay with the fact that the verse says, you're a liar. Um, It kind of reminds me of this time before I was a Christian. This is bad. Um, I I lived with a bunch of dudes, and they all put the utilities in my name, which is really their fault when you think about it. Um, uh, But then one day, um, they gave me all of the money to pay the utilities, and I would spend them on a bunch of not utilities. Um, And um, if you do that long enough, you're sitting around and your sin will find you out when the lights go off. Um, So I remember them saying, dude, did you pay the utility bills? And I actually had the audacity to get angry at them for having the audacity of asking me if I paid the utility bills that I, didn't, I knew I didn't pay. So what? What are you accusing me of? <laughs> Even though I knew they were accurate. I knew it. So that's what John is saying in verse 6. He's saying if you're living a double life, then don't be like, what? How dare he? Just don't fake the funk, it's saying. Like, you know what's up. Be honest about it and repent, which is not supposed to be a hammer or a scary word. It's supposed to be an offer of God's grace. But I'll get into that in a few minutes in closing. Um, Then in verse 7, he kind of gives the litmus test to see if you're really experiencing what he's called the common life. Um, People that are living the common life. Well, let, let me let John define it in, in verse 7. Um, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So people that are living common life with Jesus are going to want to do life or have common life with other people who are living common life with Jesus. That's what the verse is getting at. He's saying if you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and now you're walking in a relationship with Jesus, then you're going to want to be connected with others who have known the joy of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus and who are also living common life with Jesus. At that point, man, that's... We're not just called into isolation. We're called to do common life with other common lifers. It's one of the things we're celebrating when we take the Lord's table. We're saying that all of us are one together, partaking of one body of our Savior together, proclaiming that we have common life with him and common life with one another. A very practical warning comes from this verse. One of the first things that people begin to do when they begin to walk in darkness is they begin to disassociate with people who are walking in the light. Look, one of the enemy's greatest tricks is to begin to convince you 
to withdraw from fellowship and then begin to justify it by accusing in your heart that other people are walking in the darkness. At that point, the enemy has you right where he wants you, and you have perfect soil for bitterness and darkness to begin to grow. If you want to take it one step further, one of the first reasons that people begin to withdraw from fellowship is because I think they're premeditatively trying to create an environment where they can walk in darkness and know that they're not going to have any light shined on it. It might not be popular for saying that, but it's true. Um, as I was reading commentary on this verse, I came across a ringing endorsement of this common life definition that I'm using here. Let me read this to you before I move on. It's pretty cool. It says, as we walk in fellowship and light, we can enjoy the fellowship with each other while walking in the light. Fellowship that is sincere, open, honest, and transparent. And my first thought was, wow, that's so much more powerful than showing up and playing church. Like, that's biblical Christianity right there. That's rubbing up against people saying, look, man, I'm a messy dude. If you thought you were coming to a church without a messy pastor, you're nuts. Um, I think that Jesus uses me because of who I am, not in spite of who I am. But I'm a messy dude. And it's cool to be able to come and be real about that and have a church where you can be real about that and you don't have to play church. Man, I just, I mailed out three letters of repentance this morning alone. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> like, I was in this text and it was just jarring me as I was thinking through what does it really look like to walk in the light. And then as we get to verse 8, the passage kind of takes a strange and abrupt but beautiful twist of grace. Um, not that grace wasn't in there before, but this is about to set up what I think is one of the most gracious invitations in the whole Bible. Um, look at verses 8 through 10 with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So on the surface, this verse presents a little bit of a problem, especially when you look at it together with verse 10. It kind of makes a sandwich. I've got, I think I've got a little sandwich here to show you. Um, it, it's saying you can't come to him and say that you have no sin. Then in the middle, the meat of the sandwich is saying you can bring your junk to Jesus, and he's going to be awesome about it because that's who Jesus is. And then in verse 10, the other side of the bread is saying, but don't say you don't got any junk or else you're not going to bring your junk to Jesus, and you've kind of messed up the whole system of grace that he's offering you there. Um, but when we understand this passage in its whole context, it's not presenting a problem, it's presenting a solution. Or to be more theologically accurate, it's presenting a problem and it's presenting a solution. It's like the double purpose of grace that we just sang about. I get so excited when I think about this. It was grace what? That taught our heart to fear it was grace that made us aware you have a problem. Grace was the, the symptom that made you go to the doctor. Grace was the thing that started to show you, like, hey, you should get this checked out, and you should do it soon. But grace didn't just teach your heart to fear. It was grace, your fears relieved. How awesome is that? 
So once I'm made aware of the problem, it's both the thing that exposes the problem, but then the medicine that fixes it at the same time. It was grace that relieved the problem. But we had never known that we needed grace to alleviate the problem if God and his grace didn't show us that there was a problem that needed to be alleviated to begin with. Wow. Grace is awesome. And that's exactly what's going on by putting verse 8 before verse 9 and then bracketing it in verse 10. It's saying, look, you got junk. Don't say you don't got junk. Bring your junk to Jesus. He's the cosmic junk collector, man. He... That's the migraine talking on that one. <laughs> uh, and then it's saying, and don't say that you don't got no junk. Uh, so it, it's a junk sandwich, really, is what you got going on here. Look, I, I want to spend the rest of the message, the last five minutes, speaking to you from the heart um, the way that the rest of the passage does. I feel like in verses 8 through 10, John, who's such a masterful theologian in this passage, takes off his theologian hat and he puts on his pastor's hat and this passage this is directed to all of the people out there who have blown it so if you've never blown it feel free to leave see Mike he's taken off see him see him Mike sorry you had unfortunate timing not me uh, um, but seriously who has ever really blown it I mean, I'm not talking about a little mess up. I mean, who's ever really just blown it? Is there anybody here who's blown it so bad that you're like, I identify with that dude from the kickball video? Has anyone ever blown it and then looked around for somebody to blame, and then you've run out of people to blame, and, and you got back and said, wow, now I'm the only one left to blame. So I've got to start turning that finger inward because I, I have to acknowledge that I'm the one who blew it. I'm out of excuses. There's no more bridges to burn. It was, like Jim Carrey said, it was me. You know, I, I'm the guy. Um, has anybody done that? Um, because that's, all right. So we have one person back there. I won't tell you who she is, but her name rhymes with sand toffee. Um, and um, but that's what this passage is getting at. When you look at the perfection of God and the perfection that God demands, have you ever come to the realization, God, you're awesome, but I've blown it. Has anyone ever wished that you could get a do-over? And that's what the rest of the passage is about. It's all about do-overs. For me, the first time that I understood grace, I mean, really understood it, when God started to transform my heart to the doctrines of grace, and there was a reawakening in my spirit, and I was wrecked afresh by the grace of God, came from this idea of a do-over that's presented in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess of our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had just responded to somebody in completely in my flesh, and I was really just ashamed of it, and I felt guilty, and I was condemning myself, and I was self-loathing, and I remember sitting on the ground in my little pity party and saying, God, I wish I could just have a do-over. This really happened. This isn't me telling you like a, a recap of the story. This is the way that it went down, and I could hear a voice in my spirit, and I'm not trying to sound hyper-spiritual or crazy. I don't hear audible voices, but the voice was the Holy Spirit because it was reminding me of Scripture. Yes, child, you can have a do-over. 
And 1 John 1, 9 came ringing through my head that when you confess of your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that word all is in Greek? Allos. Do you know what that means? All. He cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Yeah, sometimes the Greek word just means the same thing as the English word. <laughs> um, and you know what I thought when the Lord showed that to me? Lord, can it really be that simple? Is that really what Christianity is? I haven't felt guilty enough yet. I haven't spent enough time condemning myself to be let off the hook yet. You've got to leave me on the hook to just squirm there like a fish for a little while longer before you cut me loose, Lord. It can't just be as simple as I get to confess it, and then you're faithful, and you take it, and then you cleanse me. That can't... Oh, yeah, that's exactly what the verse says that he does. Man, is that awesome. And I felt this sense of peace come over me and say, yes, Christianity really is that simple. And check this out. The way that we get a do-over is twofold. We realize we need a do-over. That's why the sandwich that I showed you with verses 8 and 10. You can't say, I have no do-over. It doesn't work like that. In order to enter into the transaction, the only thing you need to do is not say that you don't need a do-over. It's not that complicated. So those of you that look at Adam and say, like, the only thing you had to do was not eat the fruit. Um, well, kind of the same thing here. The only thing you have to do to get a do-over is not to say in your heart, hey, I don't need a do-over. That's it. That's all he's asking you for here to enter into this transaction and then realizing that you can always have a do-over and then that's it. It's, that, that's it according to 1 John 1, 9. Now, those of you who are the, hey, you didn't mention holiness, I will. There's, there's five more chapters. Like, come on. Um, so... <laughs> I love when people get mad because you didn't preach the whole Bible in one message. Um, the language of this passage seems kind of harsh over um, the first couple of verses, but it's really important because it's trying to make sure that we don't obscure this reality that the people that John was addressing could not benefit from a do-over until they realized that they needed to benefit from a do-over. So in order to realize you need a do-over, you need to realize you need the do-over. And the text is showing that we all need the do-over. He's saying when we walk in the light, if you want to now start to bridge all the verses together as we close, if we walk in the light, a couple of things happen. We see the brilliance of Jesus for how brilliant he really is. And we say, wow, that is light. In your light, we see light but it also exposes the filth of our darkness. Me and Marcy were talking through this passage this morning. I was saying, how gracious is Jesus that he just pulls back the curtain a little bit and shows you just a little bit of your filth and darkness at a time. Like if he ever just really peeled back the curtain, you would just, I mean, you'd crumble. You'd go down like a sack of bricks. But he shows you a little bit, exposes the darkness as you begin to walk towards the light. And then thankfully, we see that the only place that our darkness can be washed from is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. You can only wash the darkness by walking towards the light. That's what verse 9 is saying. That's grace. The same grace exposes your darkness, and it's the bleach that removes it. How awesome is grace. I'm going to tell you one thing the light never does, though. And never, ever shines the light on itself so you could say, wow, look at my light. I've got an awesome flashlight. 
The flashlight is just a flashlight meant to illuminate Jesus. It leads us to a confession so that we can get rid of our dim darkness and move towards the brilliance of the light of Jesus. So when you were a kid on the kickball field, there were a couple of different reactions that you could have to somebody calling a do-over. You could either be the, I don't need a do-over because I'm awesome to begin with, kid. Um, well... If that's you, it's saying, you're, you're verse 8 guy there. You're the, I don't need to do over. Well, good, don't take it. If there's the other guy that says, you don't get a do over because you should have done it correctly to begin with. That's the kid that actually likes the rules more than playing the actual game. You know, the rules kid. That's not fair, the not fair kid. Um, well, uh, they're called Pharisees in the Bible. And then there's the kid who always wants a do-over. And no matter what, man, if he kicks it and you catch it, do-over! <laughs> and what I'm saying is be that annoying kid. Be the kid that always wants the do-over. Don't be the guy that doesn't think that you don't need a do-over. That's what 8 and 10 are warning about. Don't be the guy who thinks that other people shouldn't get a do-over. Be the guy who lives boldly for God but knows that though he's merciful, you are fragmented, fragile, and weak, and you need a do-over over and over and over and over and over. And when you confess of your sins, he's always going to be faithful to give you a do-over and then to cleanse you from unrighteousness. Be the person who's aware of your need for a do-over. I kind of sound echoey in my own head. I hope that is coming out, making the sense that it makes sense in my spirit. And family, um, let, let me just speak as a shepherd as we close and give you guys the application. This, this passage kind of deals with two dangers, um, not real, realizing how big of a deal our sin is, which we've hit sufficiently, and not realizing how amazing God's grace is which I think we've hit sufficiently. And I want to remind you of the continual cleansing aspect of God's grace that we found in the gospel. Um, that was not a past tense declaration that we see in 1.9 that just happened when we came to Christ at the moment of our justification. It's an ongoing cleansing. We're already declared to be forgiven. He hits on that part when he says he's just. He was just. Like Romans says, he is both the just and the justifier of the elect who will find faith in Christ. But it's also practical. We can continue to know the daily joy of deliverance and being forgiven and washed. You can know that today, now. You can know the joy of walking out of here washed by the blood of Jesus. And you don't have to do anything. He did. You just have to hold out your hand and receive it. And I really just want to drive home that it's an ongoing cleansing. That you understand that not only were you forgiven, but you are forgiven. And he looks at your sin and he's already forgiven that which has not been done yet. That's how amazing grace is. So you will be forgiven as well. So some words of application. If the spirit reveals and illuminates the brilliance of Christ, but also exposes an area of darkness in your own heart, it's not because he wants to condemn you. It's because he wants to release you. Number two. Being made aware of conviction is a gift. And you can either sharpen your awareness of that by responding in humility, or you can quiet it by not responding and ignoring it. And I remember reading C.S. Lewis uh, years ago saying something to the effect of seek to ignore conviction long enough and eventually you'll learn to succeed. Um, 
Number three, repentance is not a hammer. It's a gift of grace. And it's not something to fear. It's something to welcome and embrace. Number four, when we respond to his grace and confess our sin, he both gives us more grace and cleanses our sin. That's what verse 9 is getting at. Like, wow, our God's amazing. On a horizontal level, um, well, actually one more. Be, be, be the kind of person who lives with an awareness of your need for a do-over and the joy of knowing that it's always available to you in Christ. Always available. You, you can always be that kid coming saying, Lord, it's me again. On a horizontal level, if somebody asks you for a do-over, it's just part of your DNA as a Christian to both give that person a do-over and to let them off the hook. Every Christian should be able to come to you and ask for a do-over, and you should be gracious and eager to, for, to give it. That's what it means to be a person of grace. I remember offending a brother one time, and I felt bad, and I, and I felt bad because he didn't make me feel bad enough. I felt like, make me feel bad enough so that I could feel better about making you feel bad. And, um, and he said, um, you're off the hook. And I was like, what is that? And he said, I just was reading a devotion. And it was saying a good definition for grace is you're off the hook. So you're off the hook. It's fine. I was like, wow, what did you just do? And it twisted me up in a pretzel. The grace of God by somebody just nodding to say, well, you know, don't do it again. I already knew that. That's why I felt terrible. Um, being let off the hook actually compelled me to holiness and wanting to seek God even more. Not to earn his favor, but somebody who has it. Now, let's be a community of sinners saved by grace who know our need for do-overs, but also let's be a community where people can come and seek do-overs and know that we will graciously and eagerly give them. Let Redeemer Fellowship be known. This is the church where if you need a do-over, you're going to hear the grace of God preached from the gospel of God. Let it be known. Jesus, thank you so much for the grace that we've been given and thank you, even just the grace to be able to uh, deliver your word with the degree of clarity today. Uh, that's not lost in me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.